is a rest to get back. So, uh, uh, but it's great to be back. I always miss our family when we're when we're gone, and uh, so uh, it's just great to be back. And uh, we're going to continue our series on the coming persecution. I don't think I'm going to finish it today. I think we're going to get uh, some some information on how we should respond to persecution. It's kind of a biblical theology of persecution. Uh, a few weeks ago, what the Bible says about persecution, and now we're going to be talking about how we should respond to persecution. It is very, very important, and uh, there's going to be a separating of the sheep from the goats, separating of the men from the boys, and uh, from the pretenders and uh, and the true believers in the very near future, and it's coming down now. So, so let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer, and um, and then we'll pick it up. I'll probably read a passage from Second Corinthians chapter two to start off. So, if you want to turn there, that would be good. But let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. And Father, in Jesus' precious name, it just it's just a beautiful thing to be. Uh, among our, our people, this, this family of believers. And we got good fellowship at um, Calvary Chapel out in Albuquerque, but it's just not the same as being with your own church family. And so I thank you, Lord, that you, you kept us healthy uh, while we were apart. And I pray that you draw us even closer uh, to you and to each other as the difficult times uh, are coming. And so I just pray, Lord, that we would see what the Bible teaches about how we should respond to persecution. We don't want to act out against this in the flesh, and we definitely don't want to deny your son, our great God and Savior. And, uh, and so, Lord, make us strong, equip us, empower us, for the difficult times ahead. So I pray, Lord, you would anoint me to proclaim your truth, that you would fill me with your spirit so that I would not uh, lead anyone astray, but that I would rightly interpret your, your word of truth. I pray, Lord, that you'd open hearts and minds, uh, my, myself included, to understand these truths and empower us to apply these truths so that we could be pleasing in your sight uh, even facing the coming persecution. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. Well, uh, you know, Jesus said in John fifteen eighteen. we looked at it a few weeks ago, if you find the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And so it's nothing personal, okay? But this world hates Jesus. It's not you, it's not me, it's the changes Jesus is making in you and in me, okay? Now, uh, it's kind of weird that it would be that way, but, you know, how, how many of us here, how many of us here love Jesus, okay? Yeah, we love King Jesus. We, we worship Jesus. We worship the triune God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We worship the God of Peter, Paul, and John. 
We worship my God. We worship your God, the one true God. We say no to the false gods. We say yes to the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, the triune God. Now, how that would make the world hate us just doesn't seem to make sense. It's like, I mean, we just look, I, I love my whole life. Your whole life is about loving God with everything you got and loving your neighbor as yourself. How could that tick anybody off? Okay. And Paul gives us a little hint of it. Jesus did when he said, if you find the world hates you, know it hated me before it hated you. How did the world, you know, God the Son became a man to save us. He didn't need to leave the throne room of God for himself. He came here for us out of love. Love drove him to Calvary. Love drove him to the cross. And it's not that we're so lovable. God has the ability to love that which is unlovable. And how did the world respond? We nailed them to a tree. And so when we say, okay, I side with you, King Jesus, if the, war, if the world is at war with Jesus and hates Jesus, they're going to hate us, okay? And so just look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16 to start off. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ. It's like, you know, the Old Testament sacrifices, you know, the fragrance from our offering our bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord, living for the Lord and not for ourselves, that offers to God a fragrance that is pleasing to him through the power of the Holy Spirit. For God's glory, our lives are a fragrance to Christ. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ uh, among those who are being saved, okay? Uh, the fragrance of Christ, but but not only the fragrance to God, but among others. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved. So we, when we hang out together, we fellowship, you ought to smell Jesus. You ought to say, what a beautiful spiritual aroma. What a beautiful Spiritual fragrance. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So we give off an aroma even to the unsaved. However, there's a difference between the two. Verse 16, to the one we are the aroma of death, leading to death, and to the other, to believers, the aroma of life leading to life, and who is sufficient for these things? We're not sufficient for it. we got, got to allow God to empower us. But, but when we're around other believers, they smell the aroma, the fragrance of life. But when we're around non-believers, they smell the stench of death and judgment. Because deep down inside, deep down inside, they know Jesus is king. They know Jesus is Lord. They know Jesus is Savior. 
deep down inside, they know he's coming back. And so don't, don't think you're something like real special or anything. That, wow, look, Bill Gates is really ticked off at me. Why would a billionaire like Bill Gates be ticked off at me? He's not ticked off at you. He's ticked off at Jesus. And deep down inside, he knows our king is coming back. And so when we're around non-believers, they smell the stench of death and judgment, the coming judgment, and they don't like that. And it convicts them. And they know that no matter how gentle and how loving we are, they know that we believe God's word and that their actions are condemned as sin. So you can have this big transgender movement and pro-homosexual movement and encourage the abortion, the killing of unborn babies and... Um, and things of that sort, and building bigger and bigger government and enslaving people, you could promote all that stuff, and they know if that guy's a consistent Christian, he or she opposes all that stuff because we side with King Jesus, okay? And uh, so uh, now I've been referring to the coming Christian persecution by a scholar named Thomas D. Williams, the coming Christian persecution. And I don't think he says anything in this book that I didn't already know. And if, you've, if you're well read on the subject, I think he would say, hey, that's no problem. But he puts it together in a book form. And we're just going over the biblical passages, what the Bible says about persecution. We covered that already. And now how we should respond to persecution. But I just want us to see things because... You know, as I've been saying for decades now, we are seeing the death of man. What C.S. Lewis called the abolition of man. God instituted human government to, to prevent the death of man. You know, before the flood, things got so wicked, God flooded the whole earth and only saved Noah and his relatives. Okay? Then God instituted human government. God said, whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed from the image of God he made man. Don't forget, Cain and one of his uh, descendants, Lamech, killed people, and there was no government to punish them. So to serve mankind and protect our, our rights to life and the liberty that God has given us and the right to property, okay, because God gave man dominion over the earth, not the government, God instituted uh, human government. But what happens is so that's to save man from extinction, the death of man. But now when government instead has become so twisted and so perverted, and it's happened in the past, there's nothing new about this, that spells out the death of man. Instead of trying to serve mankind and protect mankind, the government tries to enslave mankind. And so we're seeing that. What C.S. Lewis called the abolition of man in the 1940s, he sounded the alarm. Francis Schaeffer in the 1970s, he called it the death of man in his book Back to Freedom and Human Dignity. And we're seeing that. So when, when human government ceases to serve mankind 
and attempts to enslave mankind. And then when it gets demonic, it, it, it desires to extinguish mankind. And so, you know, just read the works of Yuval Noah Harari. It's, this, is, this is horrible, but we're seeing the death of man, which is the same thing as saying we're seeing the deification of the state, the deification of the state. Now, in, in ancient Rome, on page uh, 148 of Thomas Williams' book, The Coming Christian Persecution, he says, for the ancient Roman Empire, this identification of the state with divinity, the deification of the state, was expressed in the straightforward practice of Caesar's deification. So you had to say Caesar is Lord. Okay? Now, while the empire tolerated other divinities, other gods, other religions, it did so only as long as all religion was ultimately subject to the state. So you could say Caesar is Lord and then burn incense to the Roman gods and then you can go back to doing your own religious thing. Now, the Jews got an, an, an exemption because they were very stubborn. The Jewish faith had been around a long time and the Jews were not really into spreading their faith with the Gentiles. So the Romans said, you know, they're, they're stubborn people or they get on our nerves, but they're not spreading their faith, Okay. Now, with Christianity, at first, Christians were under that Jewish exemption. So, you know, because the Jews would say, no, Caesar isn't Lord, Yahweh is Lord. The Christians would say, Caesar isn't Lord, Jesus is Lord. Okay? Romans 10, 9, that became a part of a baptismal formula in the early church. And so the Romans were like, ah, these Christians are just one branch of Judaism. But as time went on and the Jews started rioting whenever the gospel was being preached among the Jews in different cities throughout the Roman Empire, the Romans started realizing, oh, the Jews don't even consider the Christians to be Jewish. And so they either looked the other way when the Jews would persecute the Christians or they would just arrest the Christians for starting the riot. So Paul preaches the Jews riot, and Paul's the one who ends up in a prison cell, okay? And, um, but then as time went on, the Jews were so stubborn, rightfully so, and they're dealing with the Romans, that the Romans just said, forget about any Jewish exemption, and they destroyed the temple in 70 AD, okay? It took until, until Constantine professed faith in Christ, Christianity was persecuted, and that was like 300 years after the start of Christianity. And uh, so, you know, if I'm talking about the coming persecution and I'm telling you that ancient Rome, like many ancient cultures, uh, ancient Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar, okay, the, uh, the Egyptians seeing the Pharaoh as uh, an incarnation of one of their deities or one of their deities himself. I mean, it's happened before. So what's the big deal, Pastor Phil? The big deal is technology. You could laugh every time you hear Caesar is Lord. You could roll your eyes and laugh and then walk away. And the chances, if you lived in some small village, thousands of miles away from Rome, the chances of them catching up to you are very, very low. Now you can't get off the grid, brothers and sisters. 
I remember reading about Dietrich uh, von Hildebrand, a Roman Catholic uh, philosopher and big opponent of Hitler. How I was reading in his autobiography, when Hitler, when the Nazis came to power, he had to flee Germany. This guy would wear disguises and flee on uh, on and trains, and uh, the underground had to help him escape. He fled to Austria. When the Nazis took over Austria, he fled somewhere else in Europe. But when the Nazis took over Europe, he fled to America and taught philosophy at Fordham until he died in the 1970s. But I wrote down, when America falls, where are we going to go? Okay? And so there's a couple differences there. Number one, with the technology, you can't even run and hide. Okay? And... And then you couple that with America's the, the final stronghold of freedom on the planet Earth. And, um, you know, that's why I've been saying for years, I'm not, a, I'm not a violent guy. And I don't even want to see an armed revolution, okay? But the fact that we had an, an armed middle class, you know, Thomas Jefferson said, when the government fears the people, there's liberty. When the people fear the government, there's tyranny. So just the fact that you have an armed American middle class makes it very difficult for the government to just roll over us. And so I've said for years that the final domino to fall that will usher in global tyranny is the removal of the armed American middle class. Okay? And that's where we're, we're right on the precipice of this um, as we speak. And... Uh, and so, uh, but it's like in ancient Rome. You can, you know, I'm telling you, there are forms of Christianity that our government is okay with, okay? If you claim to be a Christian, but you have no problem worshiping the state, don't worry, you're not going to be persecuted, okay? Right now, this Sunday morning in Kitsap County, you know, we're not the only church. We're part of the remnant. The remnant is big, believe me. There is a remnant in Kitsap County, in Washington State, in the United States, and throughout the world, okay? But right now, as I'm preaching this to you, there are pastors in Kitsap County and elsewhere that are preaching woke garbage, that are preaching critical race theory, that are preaching transgenderism, that are preaching gay theology. And so if your Christian faith is like a chameleon, it changes colors as needed. If you're like Gumby, you know, I mean, there's like three people here that remember who Gum Gumby is. So, But if you're like Gumby and you could be molded into whatever is popular at that time, you got nothing to worry about. This message is not for you. You could tune me out, you know, and um, surf the web on your cell phone right now. This is a message not for you. But if you stand and will not budge, you stand for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. If you say with Paul, let God be true and every man a liar. If you stand with the scriptures and say the triune God is the ultimate authority, not some bozo in the White House, 
okay, or in Congress, or for that matter, in the Vatican, okay? You say something that is in agreement with God and his word, and I'm going to applaud you. But you say something that opposes it, then I'm going to say, Lord, you just want me to roll my eyes right now and walk away and smile? Well, you want me to confront this person, but we've got to have the courage to say with Joshua. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so if you're the kind of Christian, the traditional Christian, who really believes the Bible and really proclaims the Bible and really trusts in Jesus alone for salvation, then we got some crazy days coming. Okay, and even right now, I mean, it's like what I think out of my last five sermons, two of them were, two of them were canceled, two of them were removed from YouTube. There's a few things, even in, even you know, talking to I don't want to mention the, the guy is a guy works for a research contractor that works for the no works directly for the United States government, and they they put out United States government. This is a guy who works in Washington D.C. Just found out about it a week ago less than a week ago, that they, they put out the word, if you even say that you think that the last presidential election was stolen, or if you wear any pro-Trump stuff, you're out of a job. Your career is over. And this is the United States of America. I thought we were allowed to vote whatever way we want to vote. I mean, I don't want to see people. I'm not a Hillary Clinton fan, but if Somebody voted for Hillary Clinton. I don't want to see them lose their job just because of that. And uh, But this is America. This is not Grandpa's America anymore. And I got to preach the um, uh, end of September, the last Saturday in September, uh, at a pastor's conference. And, um, and uh uh, pastors and their wives and stuff like that, but anybody who's in Christian ministry can go. It's going to be in Burien near Seattle, and they want me to preach on how to stand firm in a post-Christian culture. But one of the points I'm going to make is I've been arguing, we, we've been a post-Christian culture since the 1960s. I mean, does a Christian culture take prayer to public schools? Does a Christian culture legalize abortion? In all 50 states? Uh, does a Christian culture view in 1973 homosexuality as a healthy lifestyle, alternative lifestyle? We've been in a post-Christian culture. That's our problem with the church. We're always a generation behind. How can you have a prophetic voice when you're always a generation behind? And then the few Christians, famous and not famous, who do have a prophetic voice, and I'm talking just a prophetic voice. I'm not talking about being a prophet. I'm just saying you apply God's word to the current events, and you speak out against it, and everybody calls you a kook. Everybody calls you a kook. Listen, this is not a post-Christian culture. This is an anti-Christian culture, okay? Past Christian culture, they just think you're antiquated. You're outdated. You're superstitious. They just smile and roll their eyes. Anti-Christian culture, they keep saying, you know, this would be a much better country if we would lock those people up. 
oh, I just wish we could rid the earth of them, okay? And, um, and so that's, that's what we're facing today. Now, on, on page 142 of William's work, he mentions something that goes back. I just felt led to, to bring it up. It's mainly because of the date here. But 813 martyrs in Italy, southern Italy, and uh, page 142, William says, these were Christian laymen, mostly shopkeepers, who were slain by invading Muslims of the Ottoman Empire in the southern Italian coastal city of Otranto in 1480. On August 14th, so that tomorrow is going to be the anniversary of that. The invaders presented the more than 800 laymen with the ultimatum, either convert to Islam or be slain. A tailor named Antonio Primaldo stepped forward and declared, now it is time for us to fight to save our souls for the Lord. For since he died on the cross for us, it is fitting that we should die for him. A proclamation met with a loud cheer. Okay, and um, and then they were beheaded there, one at a time. Are we going to have the faith that where you can say, "Look, well, Jesus died on a cross for me. If it's His will, now I'm going to die for Him in the cause of the gospel." And I spent, you know, it was like thirty-five and a half years ago. That by the grace of God, I started this church. And um, and I spent the first 35 years trying to, from the scriptures, teach our people how to live for Jesus. And now I realize I got to teach our people from the word of God how to die for Jesus. Okay? And so we're going to look at what the word of God says about this. Now, who are the main persecutors? Okay, and, and by the way, let me say this again. We're seeing the death of man and the deification of the state. You don't worship the state, okay? Um, then your other religious views aren't going to be tolerated. And, and if you're a true biblical Christian, there's only room for one Lord of Lords. There's only room for one king of kings, okay? And his name ain't Klaus Schwab, all right? Um, but I say this over and over again. Politically speaking, the only thing worse than being slaves and knowing you're slaves is being slaves and still thinking you're free. And believe me, there are godly Christians that love the Lord and they're still getting their news from the wrong sources and they got everything upside down, everything backwards. Um, we, we have Christian pastors now that everybody is saying, oh, what a prophetic voice the guy has because the guy is finally taking a stand against globalism and the New World Order. But where were they in the 1990s when they were making fun of Christian pastors who are speaking out against us. You know, got a buddy sitting back there that for decades has been giving me information 
about what's coming down. But they called us kooks. They called us quacks. And um, it's not... It's not the job of Christian preachers and Christian pastors to preach the word and then just deal with what's going on. That's not the sole job. You got to get beyond that. Just as you, I'm just talking about the preaching slice of the pastoral ministry. You got to get beyond that and say, look, if this is what God's word says, then I got to also alert my people to what's coming down. But I also have to go a step further, and very few churches are doing this, and say, look, if this is what God's word says, and this is what's coming down, this is what's going, what's happening right now, well, where are we going to be a few years from now if we don't repent? I'm, I'm, t- I'm getting sick and tired of getting apologies from other Christian pastors and Christian professors apologizing to me for calling me a kook in the 1990s when I was talking about the coming death of Western civilization. Okay? It is much, much later. You know, you know, I'm telling you, you know, don't talk to me about saving America. Okay, this is unpopular. It was unpopular when Jeremiah said, look, it, we're beyond the point of no return. Just surrender to the Babylonians. That's what Jeremiah's message was. Now, I don't have clear insight into what's coming down like Jeremiah did. But I'll tell you, it is, it's not about, you know, one time the American church dedicated itself to trying to save America. And that failed. And then we moved to, well, let's try to save the Republican Party. Let me tell you, that failed too. Okay? Where's your citizenship? Okay? I want to be as good of an American citizen as possible, but ultimately I'm just passing through. And while the better American citizen I'm, I'm going to try to be and you're going to try to be, the more likely America's going to kill us. So our citizenship is the New Jerusalem. It's in heaven with King Jesus. Okay? Make that decision now. Don't wait till somebody puts a gun to your head. Don't wait till somebody throws you in solitary confinement. And if you think, well, America would never imprison innocent people, wake up and smell the coffee. You know? Um... I'm glad, yeah, I don't even want to get into it, uh, but, uh, uh, but whatever the case, look, look at first Peter chapter four, first Peter chapter four. Twelve to eighteen or twelve to nineteen. Beloved. 1 Peter chapter 4, 12 to 19. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. I don't like, I don't like to suffer. But if you suffer for the cause of the gospel, rejoice that God has called you to suffer and partake of Christ's sufferings 
that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. You know, there's a lot of guys who want to get really buffed. They want to become bodybuilders, but they don't want to work out hard. And that's why we used to say no pain, no gain. Okay? You can't get the glory without the suffering. And that's usually the way it works with everything. You want to be a good electrician? You got to do your homework. You got to work hard. And, um, but we don't want the sufferings, yet we want the glory. It's a package deal. Verse 14, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. On their, on their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. So if you suffer for the cause of the gospel, God is pleased. Verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Okay, so, he, I mean, you know, if you're suffering, if you're in trouble with the law because you're preaching Jesus, you're a hero. But if you're in trouble with the law because you're just an unethical, moral slob and a criminal, you're just getting what you deserve, okay? And, uh, but if we suffer, we want to su suffer for serving King Jesus. Verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. I'd rather give my judgment here and now in this world and suffer persecution and then eternal glory rather than have everything go my way. You know, Jesus could say, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Okay. The time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will we be? Uh, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. You know, let's face it, we've all been faithless one time or another. We haven't been always been faithful to the Lord. Hopefully it's in, in what we would categorize as small sins and not big sins. But we're not perfectly faithful to our God, but I know this. He has always been faithful to us. We serve a faithful God. Polycarp was 87 years old, a disciple of the Apostle John as a teenager, became a bishop in the early church, and they were going to bury him at the stake, burn him at the stake, and the Roman emperor was like, man, I'm kind of bummed out. I don't want to, I don't want to toast this old dude, you know? And so he told Polycarp, he said, look, just say away with the atheist and we'll let you go. Now, why would they call Christians atheists? It's because all the other people back in ancient times worshiping gods had idols to worship. But when the Christians bowed down to pray, there was no block of wood in front of them. Okay, what does that say about our friends down the block, the Roman Catholic Church? 
the worship of statues, the veneration of statues, the praying to statues, that came later on. Otherwise, there would have been no basis to call Christians atheists. You guys are praying to nothing. You, you are, you're an atheist. You have no God. And so he said, told them to say, away with the atheists. And so what did Polycarp do? He looked at the crowd and, and waved at them and said, away with the atheists. So I said, you think I'm not worshiping God? I'm worshiping the triune God. You're the guys who aren't worshiping any God. Your gods are false gods. Okay? And, um, and then the guy just said, look, you just deny Christ, we'll let you go. And what did Polycarp say? He said, four score and seven years I have served them. And he's never let me down. He's been faithful. Why should I turn my back on him now? Okay? Jesus never let you down. Sometimes we scream at God, why did you let me down? He didn't let us down. We're just not seeing things from his perspective. God is faithful, and therefore we should not be ashamed. So that's, believe it or not, now I'm coming to my, my first point here. Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. Look at Romans 1.16. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Paul says this, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. You know why we don't share our faith, faith too much? It's because we're a little bit ashamed. Okay? And we're afraid. We don't want people to ridicule us. You could probably get yourself in a decent amount of trouble. You preach the gospel enough in America right now. But we should never be ashamed of preaching the gospel. Now, what if you, you say, okay, well, I'm preaching the gospel, and now they lock me up in prison, and they want to kill me. Well, then it's time to be ashamed. No, it's not. Look what Paul says, 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. One of my... One of my favorite verses in the Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. Paul's about to be, a, uh, be uh, martyred. He's about to be executed. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, he says, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. Now, why would Paul, he's going to die a criminal's death. Just think about all the cold-blooded murderers and the thieves and the horrible people that the Roman Empire executed, and Paul's name is going to go on a list with them. Yet he's not going to be ashamed. Why not? I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. Why? For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day, okay? You see what he's saying is, I'm, I'm not ashamed to suffer and to die for Jesus because I know him. The one I believe in, I know King Jesus. And, um, and I'm convinced he is able to protect me and guard what I've entrusted to him, which is what? Everything. Paul gave everything he was to Jesus until that day when Jesus returns, Paul's 
body's going to be resurrected, join his spirit, and he's going to be there with King Jesus. If you're a true believer, you'll be there with King Jesus as well. So, so we're not ashamed. You know, I, I tell this story over and over again. You're probably tired of hearing it, but when I was in eighth grade, you know, we were talking with a buddy about, about horses a little bit earlier. I grew up in the cities, so you didn't, you didn't know horses were really as big as they claim. So they were going to take the city kids in eighth grade at St. Al's, and we had to raise funds through a car wash. They were going to take us to uh, go to a dude ranch where we would have the privilege of riding horses. And they never told city kids how big horses were. We got on top, and we were, like, terrified. It's just like, man, this is, this is not cool. And they say, if you want the horse to go the way, kick him in the side and do it. I'm like, hey, this thing weighs, like, a ton. It can go wherever it wants to go. Mine went off in the woods, took hours to find me. I didn't care as long as I didn't tick off the horse. And, um, but they thought that that was going to be fun for us. We thought it was going to be fun until we got on the horses and um, take us to a dude ranch in upstate New York. And, but we had to raise funny, had to raise the funds at a car wash. We were washing the cars, and we started putting the stuff away because it was like five minutes until we shut down. And then all of a sudden, somebody looked and said, oh, yuck, look at that car. And it's this disgusting-looking car. You could tell that if the guy owned the car for 10 years, he never washed it once. And his car is coming in the distance, and all my buddies were laughing. And I looked, and I thought, oh, that's disgusting. And I started laughing, too. And I was laughing with him until it dawned on me. That's my father's car. And then I had a choice to make. And believe me, in eighth grade, Little Catholic kid, St. Al's, eighth grade, a whole lot of choices I made were not good choices. But on that day, I made a good choice. I could laugh and be ashamed of my father, but I could stop laughing because that was the greatest man I ever knew face to face on this planet. And so I, I let them laugh, but I stopped laughing. Boy, I was happy to see my dad. I hadn't seen him the whole day. It was a Saturday. I hadn't seen him the whole day. And I was just so happy. I could care less if they were laughing. How are you with King Jesus? When people laugh at the Bible, laugh at Christianity. Believe me, there's pastors right now. If you mention the name of Phil Fernandez, they'll laugh at oh. Phil's a good guy, but he's, he's not really cutting edge, though. He doesn't realize that some people are, are born gay. He doesn't realize about this whole gender thing and white privilege and, and uh, how good socialism can be. If it's just, just applied properly in a Christian way, it won't kill the hundreds of millions of people that it killed being applied the wrong way. And, um, um, you know, so when, when I have so-called friends who laugh at me, because I, as you do, stand for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, if they want to, if you want to, if people want to laugh at King Jesus, if they want to laugh at the faith once for all delivered to the saints, if they, they want to laugh at the Bible as if it's an outdated pre-scientific book, 
Let them laugh. But I'm not going to join them. And you're not going to join them. Because we are not ashamed. God the Son became a man and died on the cross for my sins and took my punishment for me and then rose from the dead to conquer death for me. And he's coming back for me. And if I just trust in him for salvation, I receive the free gift of salvation. I can't be ashamed of King Jesus. Okay? I'm a Raider fan. You put a gun to my head and tell me to say that uh, my favorite team is the Seahawks. I don't care. I'll say Seahawks are my favorite team. But you put a gun to my head, you tell me to deny Jesus. I got to be like the Old Testament saints. I got to be like the New Testament saints. I got to be like the Christian saints throughout the centuries. I got to be like the Christians in over 150 countries throughout the world right now. Say, I'm not ashamed of King Jesus, and I'll preach him till he comes back. Uh, who, are, who are some of the ones that are persecuting Christians? There's, there's Islam. and I know a lot of Christians with 9-11 made a big deal out of Muslim Islamic terrorism and all this other stuff, and there's such a great threat to Christians, and it's just... Hey, I'm not a government official. I'm not a genius. I'm just Joe and Angie's little boy from Essex County, New Jersey. Half Italian, half Portuguese. But I know how to protect Americans from Islamic terrorism. And I stated this. I gave lectures on it. How America should respond to terrorism. Number one, you protect our borders. You stamp out illegal immigration. Number two, you get pickier about legal immigration. If people won't submit to the Constitution, if they want to come in and overthrow our Constitution, overthrow our government, uh, overthrow our culture, change our culture, then say, no, you can't stay here. We don't even want you to visit. Okay? Then you got to have the CIA and the FBI, instead of investigating the political leaders they don't like, the political party they don't like, they got to investigate the bad guys, okay, the, the, our enemies. And then the government should protect our right to bear arms. And if a few Islamic terrorists get through a protected border or people lie and they got here illegally or whatever and stuff like that, I'm going to bet on the guy that's armed to the tilt in Alabama. I'm not going to bet on the Islamic terrorists. So, but I, I just think that if you got a global agenda, you know, we, we, got, we got some leaders that would rather, in America, that would rather us fund foreign terrorism and Islamic terrorism against America. Hindu nationalism. Hindu, you know, C.S. Lewis said, in the end, it's going to come down to Christianity versus Hinduism. Either the most exclusive faith that says, look, Salvation is only through Jesus or the most inclusive faith, all religions lead to God. Now Hinduism, with the belief all religions lead to God, there's this Hindu nationalism that if you're not a Hindu, you're an enemy of the state. And so India has, has risen now in the ranks and is, in, is now in, firmly in the top 10 of nations 
persecuting Christianity. So Islamic persecution, Hindu uh, nationalism, uh, totalitarianism, where the government has total control, whether it's an atheistic regime that says there is no God, so then the government replaces God, okay? Uh, or a neo-pagan regime like the Nazis, where you end up with the Fuhrer as the fullest manifestation of the divine. Either way, if the government has total control, you've deified the state. And we're seeing that going on. And it's spread into our education, kindergarten to 12th grade. It's not education anymore. It's indoctrination and political correctness. Our universities. I mean, forget about, well, if you're a Christian, you're not going to get a, a job in a philosophy department anymore at a non-Christian school. Hey, if you're pro-American, you're probably not going to get a job teaching most subjects at our universities. Even the rise of just of Satanism. I mean, in the end, the atheistic, power-hungry politicians are becoming more and more satanic. We're seeing more and more churches being desecrated with satanic symbols. Uh, a scholar like Williams even talks about that, dedicates several pages to the rise of Satanism and the, uh, the increase in demon possession cases throughout the world. But believe me, um, when we talk, if we're talking about spiritual battle and then we're talking about political disputes and the way governments are going, we haven't switched the subject. It's still spiritual battle, okay? And high-ranking demons are controlling at this point every government on the face of the earth, and that includes the United States government and the Israeli government. It's just different shades of evil right now, okay? And um, um, are you a citizen of America or ultimately are you a citizen of heaven? We're just passing through. And, um, um, but, uh, but this totalitarianism, let me just read another quote here and then we'll wrap it up and receive the Lord's Supper. But um, on page 130, of Thomas Williams' The Coming Christian Persecution, he says, Yale professor David uh, Galenter, a practicing Jew, so he's not a Christian, this Yale professor has described with great acuity how for many atheists, politics functions as religion, and thus Christianity, with its refusal to deify political programs, can present itself to their minds as a rival worldview deserving derision and hatred. And then uh, Williams quotes from uh, uh, Galertner. He says this, but conservatives usually practice the religion of their parents and ancestors. Liberals have mostly shed their Judaism or Christianity and politics fills the obvious spiritual gap. For most conservatives, politics is just politics. For most liberals, politics is their faith. Okay, so this is an opposing, globalist, demonic, anti-Christian religion 
that has to attack God. See, Karl Marx, is, is the, you're not primarily talking a political or economic system. You're talking primarily an anti-God system. Just read all the poems he wrote to Satan. Okay? And um, so if modern atheists do indeed focus, this is now William saying this, if modern atheists do indeed focus on Christianity as their preferred target, they attack Christianity way more than Islam or Hinduism, Modern atheists do indeed focus on Christianity as their preferred target. The deification of politics goes a long way in explaining why Christians are so often ridiculed and discriminated against, particularly in the West. The pervasiveness of atheism is politically woke Hollywood. Universities, theater, media, and many other culture-molding uh, institutions helps us understand why atheists find Christian beliefs and Christians themselves so intolerable, okay? And, um, and so it's in this totalitarian state, it's the deification of the state. The Christians are the bad guys. Bad guys. C.S. Lewis pointed out in the 1940s, the abolition of man, once we throw God's morality out the window, eventually the government... Education, you know, our, our laws, education, and science will no longer proclaim truth or goodness. They'll become, uh, they'll come up with arbitrary principles and arbitrary laws and arbitrary so-called truths that just protect those in power. And I could say some things right now and get this sermon this is canceled, okay? But I think you know what I'm talking about. When guys stand up and say, I am science, you disagree with me? That's not a scientific statement, okay? And it's going the same way with our laws. Look at our, how arbitrary our laws are becoming. It's, no, it's, it's going to be like, it's no longer going to be against the law to commit certain sins. It's going to be against the law to speak out against those sins. It's, uh, it's no longer going to be law-abiding for parents to take care of their children. If the teachers convince your children, the teachers and doctors, to have a sex change in this state, if you go against it as a parent, your children can be taken from you. So I guess the parents don't own the children anymore. You want to destroy a culture, number one, you, you get, get the fathers out of the home, Okay, and that's been going on for decades. Let ladies be married to the state, and then you got to destroy the family. And with those two strikes, you better get on your knees and pray to King Jesus. When America falls, where are you going to go? You go to your knees and you, you just worship King Jesus. He is our refuge. There'll be no more refuge in the American dream. And so I'm going to close with this verse. Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33. See, so we get a lot of pastors and professors, Christian professors, saying that we're now seeing the coming death of Western civilization. No, we're not. We were seeing that in the 80s and the 90s, the coming death of Western civilization. Now you turn around and you're seeing the death. This is not America's getting sick and weak. 
America's on its deathbed, and it's his, it's his dying breath right now. We've got to decide which side we're on. So Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33, Jesus, King Jesus says this, and, and he is king. He is king. Not all these bozos out there that think they're going to rule the earth. Only one has won the right to come back and take the reins of planet earth, and that is King Jesus. Matthew 10, 32 and 33. Again, my only point right now is just look, don't be ashamed. How do we respond to persecution? Don't be ashamed to suffer for King Jesus. Do you know Jesus was not ashamed to suffer for you? The Old Testament said, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. When the Jews saw a crucifixion, they said, that's that curse. Jesus was willing to be cursed and to take our shame upon himself. Jesus was not ashamed to suffer for you. He was not ashamed to suffer for me. How could we ever be ashamed of him? And Jesus says this in Matthew 10, 32 and 33. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Whether it's good days or bad days, even when persecution comes, let us never, ever, ever be ashamed of King Jesus. Let us confess Jesus before men, even if it costs us our jobs, our, even if it costs us our freedom, even if it costs us our lives. May we proclaim the name of King Jesus until he returns in glory to take his stand upon the earth and make things right.